started with Daniel, the book of Daniel, and we are in chapter 8. This is lesson 16, I think. I'm not certain, I've kind of lost track of this. Um, but last week, we covered uh, the first, first part of chapter... Yes, chapter 16, or lesson 16. We're in chapter 8 of Daniel. Last week we covered the... uh, We got started in chapter 8. But since so many of our star pupils weren't here... uh, Yes. Well, as a matter of fact, as we ended last time, uh, I said that we would do a review of the first part of chapter 8 uh, anyhow, there's a lot of information there, a lot of superb information, but uh, we'll take a look and at it again. So, let's open our Bibles to Daniel chapter 8, and we'll get started here. Let me open this in prayer. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to study the book of Daniel. It's an extraordinary book, a historical book, uh, but not only uh, past history, but future. And we're thankful for this opportunity. We ask that God the Holy Spirit guide us this morning as we uh, read, uh, study, interpret, and come to a better uh, understanding of of what uh, Daniel is telling us, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, in the book of Daniel, it, it's always important for us to have the right perspective as we go from chapter to chapter. And as you, as you look at Daniel chapter 1, we realize that this is Daniel's... Um, the beginning of his exile in Daniel chapter 1. And he's there with Nebuchadnezzar. As we move from Daniel 1 to Daniel 2, we have the first of Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. He'll have two of them. And in his dream, of course, he has this the vision of this image. And Daniel explains it to him. Uh, in chapter 3, we have the fiery furnace or another image that uh, everyone was to worship. And of course, we don't see Daniel in chapter 3. It's just simply that he's not present, but his three friends are. So we continue through chapter 3 with Nebuchadnezzar. When we arrive in chapter 4, again, we are with Nebuchadnezzar. So we're still in the kingdom of Babylon. And we have Nebuchadnezzar's second dream. And in his second dream, we have... um, Nebuchadnezzar's fall and then of course his recovery and we end chapter 4 with uh, Daniel talking to Nebuchadnezzar telling him what actually in the middle of 4 telling Nebuchadnezzar the significance of his dream and then we have the recovery of Nebuchadnezzar and uh, we also have this marvelous statement in Daniel 4 431 at the end of of actually 32 where he says uh, until you know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses and this is goes hand in hand with what we had in Daniel 2 where uh, Daniel says that God changes the times and the seasons he removes kings and raises up kings he gives wisdom to the wise, wise and knowledge to those who have understanding and that tells us how human history really flows it's flowing because of what God is doing in human history. When we get to chapter 5, we see that we are now coming to the end of the Babylonian kingdom. And we have Belshazzar, who is the king. He's a co-regent with his father. Uh, his father is Nabopolassar. And uh, it is in chapter 5 that Daniel sees the handwriting on the wall 
And at the end of chapter 5, the very last verse, it says, That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, the Babylonian Empire, was slain, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom. Uh, Darius being about 62 years old. And so that is the fall of the Babylonian kingdom. And we move into chapter 6. And all of this has been chronological. We move into chapter 6, and we see Daniel now serving in a similar position as he had with the Babylonians, but now he's going to be serving with the Medes and the Persians. Uh, The Medes uh, were the beginning of that uh, uh, sort of dual kingdom, and then the Persians will take over. They'll be the the prominent... uh, people or nation uh, part of that kingdom and at the end of that uh, chapter we are really finished with the chronological uh, movement forward and Daniel at the end of chapter 6 is probably somewhere in his uh, 80s we're we're not certain Uh, could be the the end of his 80s we don't know if he lived into his 90s or not but when we get to chapter 7 we have our first flashback because we see that it's in the first year of Belshazzar well Belshazzar we know is by now is dead so this can't be in chronological order so this takes us back in time so what Daniel is doing in as he wrote this he wrote the chronological uh, part of his life in the first six chapters and now he's going to give us several visions that he had during that period of time so I sort of like to call this his first flashback uh, of a vision that will provide us with a future orientation. So he goes back to that vision, which is going to be future to the time that it occurred. Matter of fact, future to the time when he is where he is at, the, at that moment. So that was uh, the, the first vision that we had. It was the four beasts, and we saw it lined up very nicely with the image that Nebuchadnezzar had. And then when we arrive in chapter 8, we have the second flashback. So he takes us back again. This is another vision that I saw. And it happened during the, the reign of Belshazzar, it says, in the third year. The first vision came in the first year, in the first year of Belshazzar, which is approximately 538. And as we continue down, we're in now approximately, uh, excuse me, five. 553. I said 538. I knew that was wrong. Uh, So the first vision was in 553 approximately. And then a couple years later, it's probably about 551. So we're coming down in... Uh, numerically in the era of B.C. So now in chapter 8, we have our second vision, second flashback of a vision of the future as well. And so Daniel has these visions and he's giving them to us. So we have in Daniel sort of the the central part, we could say, of the historical... um, uh, historical part of the book and then he has these sort of addendums that he that he attaches to it and that's where we are in chapter 8 and so in chapter 8 uh, and you'll remember before I, I go you'll remember in chapter 7 we had the vision of these four beasts well in chapter 8 he's going to zero in on two of those beasts so In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me. To me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. So he's referring to what we saw in chapter 7. I saw a vision, I saw in the vision, and it happened while I was looking that I was in Sushan, the citadel which is in the providence of Elam and I saw in the vision that I was by the river Uli so here is Daniel and let me see if I can find us a map that will help us with this this one is not going to get this orientation we need to go back to 
this map right here. So this is the Medo-Persian Empire. And he says he's in Sushan, but it's actually Susa here on this map. Uh, this is the, the region of uh, Elam. So this is the palace. And as a matter of fact, uh, an interesting... I have a uh, one of the uh, commentaries that uh, talks about this, gives a little bit of the historical background, says that the vision projected Daniel into the future time when Medo-Persia would be the world power. So he has the vision while the Babylonian Empire is still in existence. In the vision, Daniel saw himself in the fortress of the city of Susa, of, uh, Susa beside the Ulai Canal. Now, listen, this is kind of interesting. Susa was located approximately 230 miles east of Babylon, right here, uh, and 120 miles north of the Persian Gulf. After Medo-Persia became established as a great power, Susa was made the central capital of the kingdom. The city was situated between two rivers. Near the junction of the two rivers, a fortress was built to protect the capital city. A large canal connecting the two rivers and measuring approximately 900 meters wide was built to one side of the fortress, and the canal was called Ulai. And so that's where Daniel is. Daniel is in this area. You'll notice he has the vision, of course, when he's in Babylon. But he envisions himself over here in the future. So that's how this works. He says, Then I lifted my eyes, and I saw the river standing, and I saw there, and I saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram which had two horns. And the two horns were high. So here's a ram uh, with two huge horns. And the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. This is a vision of the Medo-Persian Empire. And the two horns, of course, are the two parts of the empire the Medes and the Persians. And the Median portion of it arose first. Both of them served together, but then the Persian Empire overshadows the Median portion. So it is the higher of the two. So, but one, the Persian, was higher than the other, the Medes, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward, we could say uh, butting its way, ramming its way westward, northward, and southward, so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand. But he did according to his will, and became great. So, we see the Medo-Persian Empire that had started in this area, Medo-Persia, and the first thing it does is it swallows up Babylon as it goes west. It also goes north into Armenia, and then it goes south into Egypt and some portions of Ethiopia. It later will also gobble up Cappadocia and Lydia over here. So this is the uh, the Medo-Persian Empire. And that's what's happening here as it butts its way uh, westward, northward, and eastward, and southward. As I was considering, as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. Now we're going to see that this is going to be the next empire. And you'll remember in our image of empires, the first one was Babylonia, the second one was Medo-Persia, the next one was Greece, and the last one is Rome. Well, what Daniel is uh, seeing here in this vision is the two uh, middle kingdoms. He's seeing Medo-Persia, and then he's going to see the Greek Empire. So it says, 
And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west. This male goat is the uh, Greek kingdom, the Greek empire. And it comes across the the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And what it says without touching the ground is just a figure of speech to say that it was coming very quickly. It was moving very fast. While it took many years for Babylon to develop its empire, and it took many years for the the Medo-Persian empire to develop, the Greek empire is going to occur, is going to be established in maybe ten years, the maximum amount of ten years. And Alexander actually conquers the, the great part east of, of uh, Greece in about three years. And then it says, And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Um, we, will, we know now that that notable horn is Alexander the Great. And you'll notice that it says that he has a notable horn between his eyes. And I think what this is trying to tell us is that this is Alexander. The horn uh, is a representation of power. It's also a representation of rulers. And we saw that with the image of Rome. And we have one horn that comes up, and it was the little horn. And we saw that that, we believe, is a prediction, a prophecy of the Antichrist. Well, here we have another horn, and I'm going to call this a small horn. And the reason I'm going to do that is we need to keep these horns separate. Not only this horn, but another one. This one's not a little horn, but there's going to be another one. So we're going to have two horns, and one is going to be the little horn. And then we're also going to have a small one here. And the reason I'm doing that is because they are two different Hebrew words, but either one can be translated little or small, little or small, but we need to keep these two separate. But this one, it says... It doesn't call it a small horn, so we're not, we're not there yet. But it had a notable horn between his eyes. So this is going to be Alexander with power and a king. He's rising up. And it says that he has the horn between his eyes. Now that's an unusual place for a horn on a goat. Uh, and as a matter of fact, we would normally expect there to be two horns, but there's one. And I think it's his prominence in this empire. He is... Um, the first king, he's, I mean, he's the son of Philip the second. but as far as the Greek empire is concerned, he's the first king, and there will be no other king like him. When he departs, they're not going to have one ruler over the entire Greek empire, as we know in history. But it also says it's between his eyes, and what that tells us, generally eyes mean intelligence. Um, when we talk about the eyes of God, we're talking about uh, not only his omnipresence, but the fact that he knows everything, his omniscience. And so uh, this, this uh, single horn, this king, is extremely intelligent. Uh, possibly one of the greatest military strategists and tacticians that the world's ever known. Uh, Alexander is still studied today in uh, all of our military academies because he was so extraordinary. Uh, his uh, system of, of fighting battles uh, is still... Uh, considered one of the finest because he he would could defeat uh, significantly larger armies with a much smaller army. So that's what this is telling us. The little or the small horn, he is the notable horn. Excuse me. I'm sorry. Yes, he's neither of these two. The little horn comes out of chapter seven. The little horn comes out of chapter seven, and the small horn comes out of chapter 8 and he's neither of these I'm, I, I'm, I'm confusing yeah and we also have the okay 
So, we have these horns. And there's plenty of horns to go around because that's how we illustrate power or leaders. Now, and you can see the rest of this, how it it really does fit Alexander. It says, And I saw him, the goat, confronting the ram. He, the goat, was moved with rage against him. And back in history, just all you have to do is do a little bit of reading to realize that the Persians came at the Greek Empire. They were coming west and they just could not quite conquer, but they fought many a battle there and uh, defeated the Greeks in some battles, but the Greeks finally pushed them back. And Alexander had a hatred for the Persians that caused him not only to move into this area and defeat Persia, but he kept right on going. He just wiped out the Persian Empire. It wasn't it wasn't enough to defeat them in a couple battles. He wiped them out. He went all the way over to India. So it says he came at him with furious power. Uh, so Greece uh, comes at Persia with furious power. And I saw him, the goat, confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. And the word there for break is actually shattered. Just shattered the the military power of Persia. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, meaning the goat. And he, the goat, cast him down, the ram down to the ground, and trampled the ram. And so this is just complete subjugation, complete defeat. And there was no one that could deliver the ram from the goat's hand. Verse 8. Therefore the male goat grew very great, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in place of it, four notable ones came up towards the four winds of heaven. So, this again fits very nicely for Alexander. And we know that uh, he... Let me do something here just to kind of show you how this works. I did this last week and uh, this may be a little hard to, to, to see and understand, but if this one's hard, the, the other one that I really want to show you is incredibly difficult um, because it has even more is this work a little better um Here we have, of course, Greece over here. And uh, Alexander, Alexander's empire and his military campaigns, he begins here in approximately 321, or 334 up here, I guess. 334, and he starts west. And he first defeats the Persians at the Battle of uh, Granicus right here in 334 crosses over, defeats them in 334, works his way down through the uh, area of present-day Turkey, Asia Minor, and he defeats them again in 333 at Issus. He proceeds south then. After defeating them, uh, the Persians retreat back. He proceeds south, and in this vicinity, he establishes a city, and he will call that city... Alexandria continues south, comes down into um, Egypt, conquers Egypt, conquers the land in here. Actually, doesn't really conquer it as he moves through. He just notices that it's there because it's really already subjugated. But he notices it. He comes down, establishes another city, comes back up and defeats as he's coming out of the Levant area into Mesopotamia here and crosses over the Euphrates and defeats the Persians one more time, 331, at Gagamela. So... Uh, after 331, the Persians are pretty much defeated, but he continues on, comes down to Babylon, goes to Susa, uh, comes down to uh, Pers- uh, Persepolis, continues around up to Ek- uh, Batana, which was the, the capital for 
the, the Medes for a while. And, and you can see the dates here. It's now 331, continues on about 330, uh, uh, continues, establishes another city over here, and there's more cities than this, but Alexandria again uh, continues to work his way now as he works through the area of what is uh, uh, beyond now current day uh, Iraq and Iran. And here we see... Uh, at 3.30 and 3.30, he's working his way towards India. But as he gets close, he decides to go north. And he works his way farther north, 3.29, uh, 3.28. You can see the, how he weaves around, uh, uh, defeating the area up here in the steppes, uh, the lower steppes of uh, what used to be Russia. Comes back down, and he is about ready to cross the river the Hydaspes here in 326, and his army says, uh-uh, I think we've gone far enough east. And it's sometimes called the revolt of the army. Uh, they just, they, you know, we've been gone now for 10 years. We want to go back to our homes, see our wives and kids and our homeland. And so he reverses course. He's convinced by one of his loyal generals that, yes, this is probably as far as he should go. And he starts down south. And he comes down along the uh, Indus River here. And then begins to work his way back. And actually, probably the most difficult part of his trip is this trip right here. He actually split his forces and had uh, one of his generals under uh, Catratus here. Catreras comes up to the north and down. They rejoin here at another place called Alexandria, another city he established, and then come back up here and on into Susa and then to Babylon. And in 323, we have the death of Alexander right here. But you can see this is, again, this is probably where he lost most of his army because it was uh, a desert track and it was very hard on the, uh, on the army down here. But anyhow, just one more map. And now that you've seen that one, you can probably tolerate this one. Look at these. Look at what Alexander does. You know where he starts up here in Pella. Uh, the first de- defeat of the Persians here in uh, Granicus River. And then it comes down here. But you'll notice right here, starts a city, Alexandria. Starts another city, or at least changes the name, Alexandria here. Come up here, uh, after the feat at Gagamela, another city, Alexandria. Coming down here, let's see, where is our next one that he starts? Here's another one, Alexandria. He actually started 22, established 22 different cities, and all of them, he just named them. Oh, how about Alexandria? That sounds like another nice name. So here's Alexandria. This looks like it's on its way back here. I got out of of whack here. Here's Alexandria here. Come down a little bit. Alexandria here. Alexandria here. Alexandria here. Alexandria up here. Uh, Alexandria here. Alexandria here. So I guess, you know, I don't know if that was the name his father gave him or his mother, Alexander, but he just kind of liked that name. And so he uh, gave all those names. Now, here we are. Uh, We finally arrive at verse 8 where it says, Therefore the male goat grew very great, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken. And so he dies. He dies as we saw in Babylon in, uh, what did it say, 323, was that it? 323, thank you. Uh, And in place of it, four notable ones came up towards the four winds of heaven. And so, when Alexander dies, there is, of course, no one was ready to take his place. Uh, So, uh, it's divided into four sections. Ptolemy takes Egypt and Ethiopia to the south here. Uh, uh, Cassandra, Cassander has uh, Macedonia. Lysimachus has most of Asia Minor. And the largest part, which is uh, the old Persian Empire, I guess we could say, plus uh, a portion of almost all the way out here to India, are, is Seleucus. 
So that's the four that's the four divisions that we have. And now, verse nine, and out of one of them, and this is going to be the Seleucids over here. Seleucus was the king. Seleucids is going to be the um, the family from which this next horn grows and out of one of them came a small horn this is the horn that's going to be important to us as we go on it's the rest of the the chapter is about this horn and again we do not want to confuse this horn with the little horn from chapter 7 because the little horn in chapter 7 was the prediction of the antichrist and that's not who this is what we will see is we can use an abbreviation here for Antichrist, and this is going to be AE. Okay, so um, the little horn which grew exceedingly great towards the south. So here is this king, and we have the horn, it's going to be a king, and he is the king is going to grow to the south Uh, Ptolemy has Palestine in this area that's part of his empire but the Seleucids wanted that area and eventually take it they will secure the all along the Mediterranean here on the east and so they go south it says um, grew exceedingly great towards the south towards the east and towards the glorious land. And the glorious land here is Palestine. It's the land of Israel, we could say. And that's why it's a glorious or a beautiful. Another way to describe that is the word beautiful. Another translation. Verse 10. And it, this horn, grew up to the host of heaven. And it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. I'm kind of giving you the interpretation as we go, so I might as well just continue this. What does this mean? Well, there's two different thoughts. Some would say, well, when you talk about stars of heaven, you have to be talking about angels. But more than likely, in context, this is probably not angels. These stars are probably going to be representative of Israel and the Jews. Uh, so in context, that seems to make better sense. I've heard uh, people try to, to relate this to, to somehow to angels because we're going to talk about the prince of the host here in a minute. Um, and I, I think you can possibly make that work, but at least in my study right now, I think that this refers to Israel. So it casts down some of the host, uh, some of the host, or the host, and of the stars to the ground and trampled them. Verse 11, he even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. And so the prince of the host, if we're staying with our analogy here, would be God. He is the God of Israel. And again, there would be people that say, well, wait a minute, we've got humans and then we have uh, God, uh, spirit here. Shouldn't we have you know, two uh immaterial creatures or creatures, immaterial people that can go with uh, the analogy. Well, again, I've heard it said that way, but I think for uh, for our purposes it's going to be a little easier for us to understand uh, this to be the Jews and also for the prince of the host to be God. And by him, this is our small horn again, Or you might want to use, if you're using an abbreviation there, you could use A-E. Because what we're going to see is that the A-E here is is Antiochus. Is Antiochus Epiphanes. So... He is Antiochus the Fourth, and he gives his, himself this name, Epiphanes. So we have the Antichrist, and we have Antiochus Epiphanes. 
and that makes it a little easier. And I do encourage you to write in your Bibles, and you're making a note there, you can make that A-E. So it says, uh, He, this horn, A-E, Antiochus Epiphanes, even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. So he saw himself as a god, as a matter of fact. He wanted people to worship him. Uh, very similar to what we're going to have with the uh, Roman emperors. And by him, Antiochus Epiphanes, the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. And I think the his sanctuary here, at this point, is referring to gods. The prince of the host. So uh, Antiochus Epiphanes is going to remove the daily sacrifices, and the place of his sanctuary, God's sanctuary, the temple, is going to be cast down. The word for casting down here means that uh, it's going to remove the uh, ability to do, to, to worship him, to worship God. Because of the transgression, an army was given over to the horn, implied, but I think it's there, A.E. Antiochus Epiphanes, to oppose the daily sacrifices. And he, Antiochus Epiphanes, cast truth down to the ground or cast down truth to the ground and he did all this and he prospered so God allowed him to prosper so uh, well let me let me go on uh, I'll talk a little bit about what Antiochus Epiphanes does um here in a moment. And it says, I heard a holy one, I, Daniel, heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? Verse 14. And he said to me, For 2,300 days... Then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. All right. So, in verse 13, when it says, I, Daniel, heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that one who was speaking, How long will the vision be? Well, so, there's a, here we have probably two angels, and one of them is probably the angel of the Lord. So, uh, the angel of the Lord is, is possibly speaking, and what do we have? Another angel says, well, how long will this be? And he says to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. And all of that's, uh, the, two, the individuals speaking there are not that critical. But what we see, it says, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Um, I went over these dates last time, and I think the easiest way to understand this is that the length of time that's described here, the 2,300 days, uh, is approximately six years and four months. Now, how do we determine what that is and what's it mean? Well, historically, uh, the temple was cleansed after the desecration of Antiochus Epiphanes, it was cleansed in 164. There are some who would move it a year and say 165, but we'll stick with 164. And I believe that date, 164, is attached to December the 25th, 164. 164 B.C. And that's an easy date. So when I say I think, I'm theologians, historians, this is the date that uh, the Maccabees cleanse the temple. And it's also known as the, uh, becomes known as the Feast of Lights. This is when they go down to the, to, to the temple and they cleanse the temple and it's now uh, able to be used again for sacrifices. So, if there are 2,300 days involved here, 
We simply need to back this up to get this start date. And we believe, therefore, that the start date, uh, if we walk it back, is going to be in 170 B.C., and it's going to be what historians have now believed to be September 6th, September the 6th, 170 B.C. So that was the start of Antiochus Epiphanes' desolation of uh, Palestine. That's when he started all this. So those are just some dates. And the dates... Uh, may not necessarily be critical to you, but at least that's a place where you can begin to hang some of this information. Uh, this is a pretty important date. Uh, this is Josephus writes about this. Uh, I think it's in his his book, the First Maccabees, his First and Second Maccabees. But that's where we get those dates. So. Now, Daniel's had this dream, and in reality, I've been interpreting it as we go, but this is Daniel's dream. And he doesn't understand the dream, of course, because he is, during the period of the Medes and the Persians, and that's the ram, excuse me, he's actually during the period of Babylon, and he's looking forward to the ram, and then ahead of that is the goat. And so Daniel is, you know, even though he is an interpreter of dreams himself, he's going to need some help with this. So that's when he says, um, excuse me, in verse 15 it says, Then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning. You know, uh, Daniel, in his previous two dreams, never claimed, as soon as he heard the dream, to say, oh yeah, I got that. He would always ask the Lord. So, uh, the same thing here. He says, I had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. So suddenly in front of him is someone with the appearance of a man, but he knows he's not one. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, where he was standing, who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So this is probably, again, uh, the angel of the Lord, the incarnate second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ in the Theophanies, saying, Gabriel, tell Daniel what this dream means. And this is the first time we, have, we find Gabriel's name in the Word of God. We'll, we see it later. Uh, remember, Gabriel is the one that talks to uh, Zacharias about the birth of John. Uh, John the Baptist, and he also talks to uh, Mary about the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here he is a messenger of divine truth to mankind. And it says in verse 17, So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. Uh, So Daniel here realizes that this is a supernatural creature, and he is terrified by him. And he falls down to hide his face. And it says, um, So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, son of man. And the, and the, the phrase here for son of man doesn't refer to um, the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. This refers to Daniel. Understand, Daniel, that the the vision refers to the end of time. So the first thing that Gabriel does is he establishes the time frame of this vision. All right, Daniel, I want you to know that the vision is going to be sometime in the future. Verse 18, Now as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and stood me up. I like this. This you know, is just this little um, insertion here. But he's on the ground. Um, he, he was so fearful that he passed out. And Gabriel is going to talk to him. So he says, get up so I can talk to you. Pay attention, Daniel. So he revives him and puts him on his feet. It's almost like stand at attention while I talk to you. On your feet. You know. Pay attention. 
I'm not going to waste my time talking to you here. Don't roll around on the ground. Don't play with your iPad over there or whatever it is. You know, listen. Pay attention. And he stood me upright. And he said, look, behold, I'm making known to you what shall happen in, a, in the latter time of the indignation. For at the appointed time the end shall be. All right. We've had here uh, several phrases. Uh, you'll notice back up in verse 17, Gabriel says, The vision refers to the time of the end. The next phrase we see is in verse 19. He says, I'm making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation. And then it says, for at a pointed time, the end shall be. So it appears that all three of those periods of time relate to one another. And we have a period of time. And you'll notice it also says that I'm speaking to you... um, Oh, where was this? Oh, in verse 19, it shall happen in the latter time of the indignation. So what do we have here? Well, I think what's happening, since there's a latter time, there must be a former time. So, we have a period of time, and it says during this period of indignation. Alright, well we're trying to figure out what the period of indignation is or what indignation means. And that can also be translated uh, rebellious ones or rebellious time when it talks about indignation here. And I believe that this is the time, and again, not certainly first with me, this is the time of Israel's, we could say, falling away or their rebellion, uh, their disobedience. And um, Reynolds Showers came up with a very fine diagram to kind of help us look at this. And hopefully you'll be able to see this. Um, We have two periods in this section we have a former time and a latter time so these are the two divisions and the former time starts with the time of the Gentiles with the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC so in 586 BC we're going to go well this is the entire time from 586 B.C. all the way to the Second Advent, whenever that is. So, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are completed. We read that in Luke 21:24. So, Jerusalem destroyed, 586 B.C., and trodden down means it's going to be, uh, uh, it's not going to be dominant. Again, we may have a nation there, but they're not a godly nation until we get to the second advent. So from 586 all the way to the second advent, sometime in A.D., this is this period. Now it's broken into two periods. The indignation is God's program for Israel during the time when they are under discipline. They're out under discipline and they are not in the land Uh, because God has placed them in the land, they're in the land because God has allowed them to be there, and we need to respect them as a nation, particularly from the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, But he says there's a, a former time and there's a latter time. And it appears that the former time is going to be the destruction possibly of, he includes in here the Assyrian and the Babylonian captivities, and that's fine, starting in 7, most people would put it in 722 B.C., that's the fall of the northern kingdom. But it goes to about 538, because it was in 538 that we have 
the the fall of the Babylonian kingdom. So, the reason we cut it off here is because it says, I'm going to let you know what will occur at the latter period of the indignation. So, what we have here is this latter period beginning sometime future to Daniel. And Daniel, when he sees this vision, when he sees this vision, is still in the Babylonian kingdom. So, it has to be sometime subsequent to that. Plus, we know that this is a prediction of something that's yet to come, which is going to be the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks. So, we split this time, times of the Gentiles, into a former portion and into a latter portion. And so that's what Daniel's seeing. He's seeing, really, he's seeing the first portion of this, of this latter time. Does that make sense? Because he's going to see the time of the Medo-Persians and Greeks. So that's what he says here. Uh, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. So there's a future time to Daniel. Uh, now he, uh, he he stood me upright and he says, "Look, I'm making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation. God's program for the for the Gentiles while the Jews are out under discipline. For at appointed time the end shall be. At appointed time, notice that he says that this." is all under the control of someone. And of course, it's God. This is going to happen according to a timetable at an appointed time when God is going to designate things to occur. Verse 20, The ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. Alright, so we've got that correctly identified. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. We have that identified properly. The large horn that is between its eyes is their first king. So, we have the Greek Empire and the first king is Alexander. Not identified here, but that's who this is. As for the broken horn and for the horns that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall rise out of that nation, but not with its power. So, as far as the broken horn, that's the first king, Alexander, and the four horns that stood up in its place, we understood that that was Cassander, Lysimachus, Ptolemy, and Seleucus. So we have those four. They rise out of that, that nation, the, the Greek kingdom, but not with its power. So, none of them were as powerful as Alexander in the initial portion of the Greek Empire. Then he says in verse 23, And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, of course he's talking now about the Jews, when they've reached their fullness, a king shall rise. And this is A.E., Antiochus Epiphanes. This is who this is. Having fierce features, the word here for fierce features means a strong face. And I, we think that possibly if we translate that as a strong face, fierce features, we're, pro- we're probably using a figure of speech, meaning he was very arrogant. He's a very arrogant man, uh, making himself God, uh, imposing himself on the worship of others who understands sinister schemes. One of the things we do know historically about Antiochus IV is that it was not his turn to rule, but he devised a plan in order for him to be placed on the throne. And so he comes to the throne by devious means. And here, sinister schemes, um, you know, he is a, he's wily, he's shrewd. Verse 24, His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. And so this appears to mean that uh, he will be very powerful, 
But he will be assisted in this by Satan, by demons. Why? Because Satan wants to destroy the Jews. He shall destroy fearfully or exceedingly and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. So he'll be uh, defeating many nations, many people that might come against him. Uh, Certainly down, uh, took care of the uh, Ptolemaic uh, Empire. Uh, And he also, it says will destroy the holy people. So he will fight against Israel, the Jews of that day, and defeat them. Verse 25, Though his cunning, through his cunning, his shrewdness, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. So again, he's, uh, and if you read any of the things, any of the acts and activities of Antiochus Epiphanes, he would send a delegation somewhere uh, escorted by a contingent of the military to help. He would say, well, we're here to do something. And then at the end, they end up taking over. So he was very shrewd in the way he would do things. And he shall exalt himself in his heart. Uh, so self-exaltation uh, here, he sees himself as God. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. Uh, there were many who were very prosperous. He would just move in and take over. Uh, destroy what they have and tax them heavily. He shall even rise against the prince of princes. And this is, he will see himself as God, place himself in the temple. Uh, God was the one that dictated what would happen in the temple. Sacrifices uh, that would occur there and the various uh, functions to occur. Well, Antiochus Epiphanes uh, destroys all that and dictates how it sh- what should be done in the temple. So he sees himself, puts himself in the place of God. Uh, but he shall be broken without human means. Uh, this appears to mean that he's going to die, but he's not going to be defeated by man, but God is going to take him out. And there are several different uh, versions of how Antiochus dies. Uh, one of them is that uh, his, uh, his kingdom is being attacked and he dies of, uh, of heartbreak or he dies of uh, anxiety over that. There's another one that says that he died from a uh, disease that may or may not have been uh, properly diagnosed at the time, like epilepsy or something like that. But again, uh, he was broken without human means, meaning that God takes him from power. Verse 26, and the vision of the evenings and mornings, and that takes us back to uh, 14, um, a reference to that. The refer- uh, and the vision of the evenings and mornings, which was told, which was told is true, it's the truth. Therefore, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. Uh, now, when it says here, to seal up the vision. Many people take that to mean that uh, it's to be hidden. It's Daniel, don't tell anybody. Don't write it down. Don't tell anybody. Seal it up. Well, that's not what Daniel did. Daniel does write it down. And we do know about it. So the idea of the sealing it up means to preserve it. Um, and that's what they would do. If they were writing on a scroll, they would be writing. And then to preserve it, they would roll it up and put a seal on it and usually put it in uh, maybe some sort of pottery and to preserve it. And then they'd bring it out, unseal it when they wanted to read it. And so that's, I think that's what this means. Preserve it. Uh, verse 27, And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterwards, I arose and went about the king's business. Now, what does it mean that Daniel again fainted again? He passed out again and was sick. I think one of the reasons that this is what Daniel does is that he realizes that his uh, that the Jews are going to be uh, in exile for all of this time. His people. This is going to affect his people. Um, and even though he's He's told what's happening and that there's going to be a cleansing of the temple. He realizes this is going to go on for at least another six and a half years. Uh, whenever this starts in the future, whenever we get it, uh, whenever that occurs, and so this is, I guess we would say, uh, a concern for Daniel 
And he has a passion for his people. He loves them. And he was always wondering when the captivity was going to end so some of the people could go back. And we're going to see that in the next chapter, chapter 9. He's going to discover uh, an end date for the exile. But here, at the end of chapter 8, he faints, he's sick uh, for days. But then afterwards, he, he arises and goes about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision. But no one understood it. So this vision is, you know, a conundrum. Even though it's been explained to Daniel, uh, he realizes it's in the future. Uh, he knows that it's going to be the Medo-Persians. He knows it's going to be the Greeks. Um, but there's a lot of other details there that are yet to be shown him. And uh, this is all about Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, and what I wanted to do, if I Take just a minute of time here to read some of the things that Antiochus Epiphanes did. I think I wrote that down here somewhere. Um, um, the small horn Antiochus Epiphanes magnified himself to be equal with the prince of the host, the starry host. Uh, he removed the regular sacrifice of the prince of God, harmed his sanctuary, threw truth to, to the ground, believed that he took uh, many of the scrolls and uh, burned them, destroyed them, uh, and he prospered. God allowed him to prosper in what he was doing because it was part of the, uh, the discipline for Israel. Um, since God was the one who had instituted the temple with its system of regular sacrifice, only he had the right to stop the sacrifice and to harm the temple. Antiochus arrogantly entered the temple of God in Jerusalem, stripped it of its uh, sacred furniture and valuable ornaments, ordered the sacrifices ended in the temple, and polluted the temple. Since this king did what only God had the right to do, he thereby magnified himself to be equal with God of Israel. Antiochus threw the truth of God to the ground where he ordered the worship of Jehovah stopped and replaced with pagan worship. Uh, I mentioned last time that one of the things he did was that he had swine uh, sacrificed. And many people think that he did that simply to desecrate the temple. Well, it wasn't so much, that's maybe part of it, but uh, uh, pigs, swine, were an appropriate sacrifice for the Greeks. And one of the reasons, uh, at, at this particular time, there were many Jews in the country who had prospered, and they were uh, very wealthy and very successful, and they aligned themselves with Antiochus Epiphanes. They actually had agreements with him, and they were not opposed to what was happening, because they had felt rather uh, uh, restricted by the... Uh, the temple uh, uh, temple rituals and and the Levitical uh, feasts and the Levitical law and so they really uh, were not opposed to it being removed and so that's part of understanding uh, the, the rebellious ones or this period of indignation so there's um, historically it appears that there is a good reason for understanding uh, the Jews in Israel at that time being uh, described as the time of indignation. So that brings us to the end of chapter 8. And I realize there's a lot of information there and there's probably a lot more that could be uh, stated about Antiochus Epiphanes and all that he does. But uh, this is about Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, next week we're going to come back and we're going to see Daniel's Prayer for the people. We start out in chapter 9. And chapter 9 is another one of these very critical uh, texts. But, whereas in chapter 7, we have a vision of the Antichrist. And in chapter 8, we have a vision of Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, what's going to happen is Daniel, in chapter 9, is going to say a prayer for the people, and he is going to get information about both of these in chapter 9. So, in chapter 9, uh, it's one of the more difficult 
chapters to uh, interpret. But we'll see that we have historical uh, information for Daniel, which is historical to us, which was future to him. But there's also distant future, we could say, something that is prophetic still for us in chapter 9. And then, of course, the last part of chapter 9 is the 70 weeks prophecy, which is just a marvelous prophecy. And we've, we've been over that several times, but uh, I have to tell you, you can never go over it enough because it, uh, it can be a difficult one. And every time you go over it, you say, you get another piece of it. You get another piece and another piece. And so I enjoy teaching it as well. So, uh, let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this marvelous chapter. We're thankful for the information it gives us. We're thankful that it was given to Daniel and that it was explained to him by Gabriel. Uh, we're also thankful, Father, that we have this, uh, this next chapter that's going to give us uh, a timeline for human history uh, so that we realize that, uh, that how important Israel is to you and how important it is in history and how important it should be to us today. Uh, we're thankful that they are the, uh, the really the, uh, the important piece of history that allows us to follow time. Uh, however, right now, of course, we are in a, uh, an intercalation, a gap in time, as we await the return of our Lord Jesus Christ at the rapture for that timetable to begin again. Uh, so as goes Israel, so goes uh, human history. Uh, but help us now, Father, you've given us this blessed time when the church is uh, actually carrying out the mission that was originally given to Israel. And we pray, Father, that we would do that well. And that is be a, um, a source of divine information to the lost. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.